This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution uh, Foundation uh, event. Now, if you were paying a lot of attention to the news this morning, and you're not, you know, if you just listened to the first few bits of the bulletin, you knew there was a heat wave. You probably heard about the burnout houses. You might have heard about never-ending leadership elections. You get no points for that. Everyone found that out. If you stayed to the end of the bulletins, then you would have found out that somebody won the lottery. I think it was, was it 185 million quid? 195 million quid, right? Overnight yesterday, the biggest lottery win ever. Now, there's a point to this, which is that person is now very wealthy. And we're going to be talking today about wealth and the big increase in wealth, not that just happened yesterday, because that hasn't had time to turn up in the figures yet, but um, uh, the big increase in wealth that has happened in Britain over the course of the last four decades, and asking where that leaves us, where does it leave us in terms of wealth inequality, where does it leave us in terms of the ways in which wealth interacts with wider questions of living standards. And we're going to be doing that drawing on... Um, uh, our wealth audit, which is published today in part partnership with the uh, Aberdeen Financial Fairness Trust. We're, we're very grateful for their support as ever. And you're first of all going to hear from Molly Broom, who's one of the authors of that paper and an economist here at the Resolution Foundation, taking you through the headlines of that report. You should go on the website and read it all uh, after you've listened to the news. Then, then you're going to hear from Richard Lane, who's Director of External Affairs at Step Change. And we're very grateful for Richard stepping in at short notice after a colleague of his has fallen foul of the there's no trains running into London from Leeds uh, trauma this morning. So thank you very much, Richard. And then you're going to hear from George Eaton, who's a senior editor at The New Statesman. And he's actually written quite a lot of pieces that are getting into some of these what does, why does wealth matter, how does it affect society and how does it affect politics. So that would be great. Now, as always, you can put questions on Slido, go to Slido uh, and on the website and put in hashtag wealth gaps and we'll have a few polls to vote in there and take your questions as always. So that is the plan this morning and we'll wrap up at 10.45 so everyone can get on with enjoying it being warm but not totally unpleasant. So, Molly, kick us off. What does the report say? Okay, thank you, Torsten. And as Torsten mentioned, I'd like to uh, thank the Aberdeen Financial Fairness Trust for uh, supporting this work and funding this work, and also my colleague Jack, um, my co-author, uh, for all his efforts on the report as well. Is this working? Turn it on. Oh, there we go. Oh, there's some rich men. Here we go. Um, so we're hearing a lot about wealth inequality. Earlier this year, Oxfam reported that the 10 richest men in the world saw their wealth double during the pandemic, a time in which many saw their incomes fall. So it's understandable why people think that wealth inequality is increasing. But the real picture is much more complicated than this, at least in the UK. So with this in mind, I'm going to talk a bit about how the distribution of UK household wealth has changed over the recent time and the impact it has on families ahead of the cost of living crisis. So to kick us off, one of the key economic trends of the 20th century was a decline in wealth inequality. At the beginning of the 20th century, over 90% of all wealth was held by the richest 10%. But since the 1980s, top wealth shares have been relatively stable, with the richest 10th owning around half of all wealth. And other measures of wealth inequality have been broadly stable too. So, if wealth inequality isn't getting worse, why should we care? Well, headline measures of wealth inequality only tell part of the story of the changes in the distribution of household wealth. 
One of the least discussed trends of the UK economy is the consistent rise in the total value of wealth. Between the mid-1960s and the mid-1980s, the value of wealth hovered at around three times the size of the economy. Since then, the value of wealth has increased with latest estimates showing that the value is now close to eight times the size of the economy. This increase in the value of wealth has real-world implications. In particular, rising asset prices have led to wealth gaps between families increasing. And this can be seen here on the chart, which shows the wealth gap between families in the middle wealth decile and those in the top and bottom. In 2006, the richest tenth of families had wealth of close to £900,000 more per adult than a family in the fifth decile. But by the start of 2020, that gap had increased to over 1.2 million per adult in real terms. The rise in the total value of wealth has also resulted in UK wealth gaps being particularly large among international comparators. Looking first at the share of wealth held by the top 10%, the UK is not high by international standards. In fact, the share of wealth held by the top 10% in the UK was equal to the OECD average. But when looking at the gap um, of wealth between the wealthiest tenth of households and the poorest 40% of households scaled by disposable incomes, the UK is second only to the US. And this is particularly worrying given that the US tends to be an outlier on many measures of economic inequality. Notably, some countries with higher relative wealth inequality, such as the Netherlands, do much better under the metric used to measure um, gaps in wealth. Possibly this is due to either higher disposable incomes and or lower levels of private wealth holdings. We also care about wealth inequality because stable top wealth shares hides changes across and within groups. There has been a rise in intergenerational wealth inequality, with the share of wealth held by those aged 65 and above rising from 42% in 2006 to 8 to 51% in 2018 to 20. Although some of this change will be driven by demographics, it does not explain the full shift. A bigger contributing factor is that younger age cohorts are accumulating wealth at a slower pace than older age co cohorts were at the same age. For example, home ownership rates are lower among younger people than they were for their parents' generation at the same age. It is not just inequality across age groups that matter, but also inequality within age groups. This chart here shows the wealth inequality among those aged 45 to 49 and those aged 80 and above. And there is a clear pattern. There has been a strong decline in wealth inequality among older age groups, but wealth inequality has increased for those um, in middle age groups. Another important area where wealth inequality matters is the wealth inequality across different ethnic groups. Previous research has found that in 2016 to 18, the typical wealth held per adult in a black African family was around 24,000, while the typical wealth held by a white British family was over eight times higher at 196,000. And these gaps have not been closing over time. Inequality across regions has also risen. And this chart shows that the high areas with high average wealth levels have seen their share of wealth grow over time. For example, in 2006 to 8, 42% of the country's household wealth was held by families living in the south of England. Since then, this has risen to 46%.
And again, this can't be explained by population change alone. Naturally, the rising share of wealth held by families in the south of England mean that other areas of the country are falling behind. And this is particularly the case with northern England, where around a quarter of the population live, but families there only hold 18% of the wealth. Finally, we care about wealth inequality because wealth gaps matter for how families experience the cost of living crisis. Having money set aside is an important component of financial resilience. And while we hope that families at all income levels would have savings necessary to ensure against income shocks, unfortunately, this is not the case. Over two-fifths of British families have savings of less than one month's income. An even more acute lack of financial resilience is experienced by those with no savings. As we can see here, it is low-income families that are more likely to have no savings. Low savings does not, also, does not just leave low-income families more exposed to income shocks, it also affects how they cope with them. As you can see here from the green bars, 32% of families with no savings would rely on family and friends to find money for an unexpected major expense compared to just 3% of families with savings of more than one month's income. However, reliance on family and friends is not a good strategy when an income shock is widespread. The cost of living crisis is affecting all families, with many seeing their real wages falling. Those who were once in a financial position to help family and friends may no longer be able to do so. As a result, the cost of living crisis may prevent low-income families from accessing their normal coping strategies. Low-income families are most exposed to income shocks as a result of their limited, um, limited wealth holdings. They also have the fewest options to avoid negative financial outcomes. As a result, low-income families may find themselves more likely to struggle to keep up with their bills. And this is demonstrated here in the chart, which shows that bill arrears are particularly concentrated among low-income families. And this is a particularly important finding because bill arrears have some of the worst outcomes for well-being. 15% of those in bill arrears reported very high levels of anxiety, but this drops to 8% among those not in bill arrears. The impact of bill arrears on well-being is particularly worrying given that we're going into a period where um, energy prices and bill arrears are expected to skyrocket. The energy price cap increased by a massive 54% in April, and it is predicted to rise again to above £3,000 in October. Given the low levels of financial resilience within low-income families, rising energy prices this winter could force many of these families to take on more harmful forms of debt. So, to wrap up with some key takeaways, wealth inequality has been remarkably stable since the 1980s, but this doesn't mean we shouldn't care about it. Wealth gaps have grown, driven by the rising level of uh, the rising value of total wealth. There has also been changes within, in wealth inequality across and within groups, and wealth gaps influence how families experience the cost of living crisis. Great, thank you very much, Mike. Very clear, indeed. Um, right, that's quite a lot of big picture stuff, and then some um, specifics. But Richard, I think you're going to. Drag a spike back down to the <laughs> real world of what's happening right now, given that step changes on the front Sure, line I will do my best. Uh, thank you so much for having us. Uh, I'm Richard Lane. I'm the Director of External Affairs uh, at Step Change. Uh, some of you may know Step Change is the largest debt advice provider in the UK. Uh, we help about 500,000 people every single year with their financial problems. 
Uh, that is uh, across a range of solutions. Some of that will just be advice, guidance, um, but a huge amount of that is, is full regulated debt advice for, for people who are really struggling. Uh, and what you've just taken us through really resonates with what we see uh, on the front line uh, at Step Change. We know that there are millions of people across the country who are massively struggling uh, with their financial resilience. Uh, in fact, there's a quarter of adults, according to the FCA, uh, across the country who are struggling and have what they call low financial resilience and the ability uh, to maintain and respond to economic and financial shocks. Um, before we go into kind of what we see at uh, Step Change, I just want to kind of give a bit of context around what some of the harm of problem debt and financial issues is that we face. Uh, of the 500,000 people who come to us, uh, and we know this both in terms of the stats and, and the ability and the opportunity that I have regularly to do uh, call listening on the front line, uh, financial problems have a devastating impact on families across the country. It is not uncommon when that first phone call is made, the first thing that someone will say to us is, I've not spoken to someone about this for 18 months, I've not told my partner, and I'm probably going to take my own life if I can't do something about this really soon. That is overwhelmingly the first call that we will get. There is so much shame, so much stigma, so much of it is wrapped up in additional problems and, and issues as well, particularly uh, mental health problems. Uh, and we're now at a point where 60% uh, of the clients who come to us disclose what we would call as an additional vulnerability. So we consider that all of our clients have a vulnerability because they are financially vulnerable, but 60% have some sort of additional vulnerability as well. That could be addiction, it could be mental health problem, it could be disability, uh, it could be anything like that. But that's kind of the situation that we are getting uh, and it's driving family breakdown, people unable to kind of concentrate on work and jobs. Uh, overwhelmingly, what we see also is that people were kind of just about getting by. They were spinning plates, they were kind of just about juggling uh, everything that they possibly could until something comes along, a life shock comes along that hits them uh, and knocks them off track. So seven in 10 of the people who come to us say that a life shock of some sort is what has tipped them over the financial precipice. Uh, so that is overwhelmingly that they've lost their job or had a reduction in income, uh, they've had ill health or their families had ill health that they now have to care for, uh, or they've had a relationship breakdown or a divorce uh, that they're now managing with. And all of those debts that they were just about struggling with all of a sudden become unmanageable and they tell us they are stunned by how quickly that problem can spiral for them uh, when they start missing those first payments. Uh, kind of looking around what we also see, uh, we also know that our client demographic has changed quite a lot over the last, say, 10 or 15 years or so. Uh, I've kind of recently started talking about that when we were founded 29 years ago, we were founded to deal with a consumer credit crisis. I think we are now facing a poverty crisis amongst our clients, and we've noticed a real shift uh, amongst the demographics who have come to us. So overwhelmingly, our clients are under the age of 40, so uh, more than two thirds of our clients are under the age of 40. Uh, uh, only about 11% of clients now come to us own their own home. That compares to about half of clients just 10 years ago who would have owned their own home. They're overwhelmingly in the private rental sector. Uh, they're overwhelmingly likely to be in gig economy or more unstable types of work. Uh, startlingly, 22% and rising of our clients are single parents compared to uh, just 6% of the general population who are single parents. Um, and we're also seeing a huge rise in the number of clients who after full advice are what we call negative budget clients. So that is after we've taken them through the most stringent budget you can possibly imagine. 
we've signposted them to income maximization benefits, uh, they still have more going out than they've got coming in. So about a third of our clients are now negative budget, uh, negative budget clients, which has risen sharply. Uh, some of our uh, models and projections, although of course there is human behavior that we can't quite model, suggest that could reach almost half of all of our clients being negative budget clients. And that's a massive problem for us because if you're an organization that's set up to help people and half of people come to you and you can't really help them because debt advice is not a magic wand, we can't solve all of those problems, that's an enormous problem. And we can signpost them to housing charities, food banks, but ultimately that is a challenge of public policy that needs to set in that debt advice as a sector is not able to kind of fix. Um, so in terms of the kind of things that we want to see, so uh, we think there's a few things that needs to happen. So we were very pleased to see the ambitious package of measures that the Treasury announced in res response to the rising energy bills a few weeks ago. But the situation has changed and is moving every single week. And that is not going to cover all of the bills and all of the costs that people are going to be facing. We need to see universal credit uprated in line with inflation more regularly. Uh, we need to see the Treasury revisit what some of that targeted uh, package of measures might be to support households. We'd like to see further extension of things like the warm home discount and the winter fuel allowance uh, so that people can be supported this winter uh, to get through what I think is going to be a uh, uniquely challenging time. We also need to see uh, when people do need to turn to borrowing because credit can be a good thing. There is nothing wrong with credit if it is being used properly, sensibly, and it is a product that is not set up to cause harm. So when people turn to credit, they need to be able to access affordable credit. One of the big issues we see amongst our clients at the moment is the second that you fall into vague, even vague financial difficulty, your credit score is gone. That advertised 29 3.2, 4% APR, you're not getting it. You're not even close to getting it. You will be getting 10, 20, even 70% APR on sort of standard loans. And we've all seen the adverts, or maybe it's just me at home watching Loose Women and seeing the adverts for uh, payday loans, I don't know, um, for hundreds if not thousand percent APRs. Those are the loans that you're getting. There is no access to even vaguely affordable credit for you. So we need to see a solution to that. And a particular tribute to John Glenn, who was Economic Secretary to the Treasury until recently, who's really pushed on some of these things from the Treasury uh, and has set up a pilot on a no-interest loan scheme, which uh, we would like to see uh, expanded uh, rapidly and drastically across the country and see that uh, as a potential game changer. Uh, we'd also like to kind of see expansion and continue push on things like help to save so that uh, the poorest households, the lowest income households are able to save a little bit. We know that if uh, households had on average a thousand pounds of savings, it would reduce their uh, propensity to falling into problem debt by uh, almost 50%. So almost half of our clients would not be phoning us if they had uh, just a little bit of uh, financial resilience and savings in their back pocket that they could fall back on when those crises uh, kind of pop up uh, when they uh, need that money. We'd also kind of echo that you've talked about kind of uh, borrowing from family and friends. We see that a lot. We saw that particularly during the pandemic where it felt like everyone rallied around, but their ability to do that is reducing drastically. People are not going to be able to do that uh, as we move forward. Um, so that's kind of just a bit of a whistle-stop tour at what we, we see at Step Change. And uh, yeah, hope that was a kind of helpful coverage of what we're seeing on the front line. That is very helpful indeed, even if quite depressing, Richard, but thank you very much indeed. Um, right, George, I mean, this issue has been coming a while, as like Molly's second chart shows. The, um, where's, it, where's it left us? Yes, so <clears throat> thanks, Torsten, and um, thanks very much to the Resolution Foundation for inviting me to speak today. I think the Resolution Foundation's done a huge amount to improve our understanding of the UK economy 
and to improve the quality of uh, economic debates. Uh, so it's a pleasure to be here today. You, you can um, come back. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is uh, an incredibly useful and important uh, report. Um, and I wanted to look at some of the interactions with, with politics and what I think some of the political implications of this are. I think one of the most obvious for me is that we are going to need to have a much more serious conversation about wealth taxes. Um, as Molly said, one of the very striking stats is that though wealth inequality hasn't increased uh, since the 1980s, um, the amount of wealth held by households has massively increased. So it's gone from being equivalent to almost three times the UK's GDP to eight times. And this is um, a finding from your recent Stagnation Nation report um, that over the same period, tax revenue from this soaring stock of wealth has risen much more slowly by just 46%. Um, housing is perhaps the most glaring example since the 1970s, house prices have risen by 166% across the country and 513% in London. And yet for decades, politicians have refused to tax this windfall. Even now, the council tax bans are based on property values from 1991, so dating back to the major government. And there's been a big taboo about taxing wealth. We've seen the difficult uh, conversations politicians can get into uh, over proposals such as the mansion tax and, and what you do about those who are income poor but asset rich. But it's just not uh, sustainable for the UK to refuse to look at um, higher wealth taxes, particularly in a climate where living standards are falling uh, at the fastest rate since the 1950s. We've seen in the Conservative leadership contest that the unpopularity of taxing income, uh, the unpopularity of the national insurance rise. And then for different reasons, Labour is, is also uncomfortable about taxing income, particularly I think as the party looks to broaden its appeal. So there have been reports that um, Keir Starmer will not repeat the pledge, for instance, to tax the uh, top 5% of earners more income tax. The logical corollary of that is that Labour will have to look at some form of wealth taxes to raise the revenue that it will want for its political priorities. There's obviously an egalitarian case for wealth taxes, but I think there's also a conservative one, because by taxing unearned income more heavily and earned income more lightly, the government would promote enterprise and reward work. It would also potentially boost growth by discouraging rent-seeking and encouraging investments in wealth-creating industries. Then in terms of the effects of wealth um, on politics, perhaps the most striking one is the interaction between home ownership and voting intention. So the last decade of um, Conservative government has been strikingly poor for living standards, but we have seen, um, as Molly documented, a boom in wealth growth um, aided by ultra-low interest rates and uh, quantitative easing. And homeowners in turn have rewarded the Conservatives. In 2019, 57% of owner-occupiers and 43% of mortgage holders uh, voted Conservative 
against just 22% and 33% for Labour. Of the 365 seats won by the Conservatives, 315 have home, have home ownership levels above the UK average of 64%, compared with just 53 of the 202 won by Labour at the last election. And there are only three Conservative-held constituencies, Chelsea and Fulham, Kensington and the cities of London and Westminster, that have home ownership rates below 50%. And in the so-called Red Wall, the Conservatives benefit from the support of uh, retired owner-occupiers. So if the Conservatives want to maintain their traditional electoral base, then they're going to have to look seriously at how you um, drive up um, home ownership. And I think the continual attachment to new versions of the uh, right to buy scheme is, is, is a red herring because really you need to look at how you create um, far more uh, sustainable wealth among uh, the public and that's partly by improving living standards so people are able to save more but I also think we'll have to come back to the conversation around how you encourage Savings. So there was an early experiment with uh, child trust funds uh, during the Brown government that was abandoned. But this conversation is recurring, uh, particularly with the popularity of uh, UBI and the trials we've seen of that uh, across the developed world. So I think that's a conversation we're going to have to come back to. And I also uh, completely agree with Richard that we need to look at how we can improve the resilience of the UK welfare system so that people aren't uh, left so helpless at times of crisis. And I think, unfortunately, these economic shocks, uh, whether caused by uh, economic instability, whether caused by uh, the environment, whether caused by the return of great power conflicts, as we're seeing playing out in Ukraine, are likely to become more rather than less frequent based on the current trends. And that's all the more reason why uh, the UK needs a welfare system that provides genuine support in these times of needs rather than uh, simply providing the, the minimum required. So those are some thoughts on how I think the debate around uh, wealth and wealth inequality will play out in, in politics. And I think both the Conservatives and Labour though it's an uncomfortable issue, are going to have to talk a lot more about wealth. And not in a fun way. Right, thank you very much, George. Because um, we do like, the country likes talking about wealth. I mean, like, every weekend newspaper is, like, stuffed full of these property sections. Yeah. And the TV has to turn it off, because you, you can't get loose when all you can get is, like, homes <laughs> under the hammer or something. Yeah, and at some point, so they do, it's not that we don't talk about it, it's that we don't like talking about the socially awkward bits. Like, can we have some of it? Right. The, um, uh, now, there's a lot to... Uh, I'm conscious there's a lot to try and chew under. So what we're going to try to do, this may, I may fail. We're going to try to cover what's going on on this wealth stuff. What does that do to it? our economics, a bit of society and a bit of politics? Obviously, they'll overlap, but try and show some discipline. And then we're going to go to the cost of living crisis. What's going to happen this winter? How does some of this interact with that? And also, the, you know, we're focusing on prices going up. Obviously, the corollary of prices going up is interest rates going up. And it's interest rates coming down that have driven Molly's chart to showing wealth surging over the course of the last 40 years. So where does that take us is also a, as well as obviously putting up thing, putting up the cost for some homeowners, not all, but some homeowners. Right, so that is the plan. Hopefully that makes vague uh, sense. So uh, George, why don't you start, well, I'll start the first question for you, which is, so um, I think I'm regularly told wealth inequality is going up and it's really bad, right? Okay. 
The, um, but I mean, it's not that it's come down a bit, it's come down like shed loads, because it turns out that a feudal country with a large aristocracy is a lot more unequal than like a vague modern democracy. Like, why, why do we, why are we in, it's weird. Everyone's like watched all the period dramas, right? So they know there were basically aristocrats that owned everything. Um, and I can't remember exactly the number you had, but 90% was owned by the top. 10%. Top 10%, right. It's not like close to today, okay? It's like very extreme. Why do you think we like, uh, despite watching the TV, um, when we're not watching, Morich is watching, still don't understand how much wealth on a court has come down? Yes, I think it's partly because of um, conspicuous consumption in, in, in the modern age in terms of the, the private jets, the, the, the scale of the, the houses. So I think, it is, I think it is that point made in the report about... Though the, yes, though the, though the UK, though inequality hasn't grown, it feels like it has because we've had this wealth boom over the last decade. Yeah. And so the absolute gaps are bigger. I also think it's because we, we, you have, I suppose, the, the, the Sunday Times rich list is the best example of that. Every year you get the headline, the rich are richer than ever. Yeah. And, and actually that's, that's what you'd expect in terms of even if they're not always rising with inflation over time uh you would expect incomes and wealth to rise but i think it's that's coupled with the as you've documented perhaps more than anyone the awful last decade for living standards i think um and that the the wealthiest have increasingly relied on their assets to to generate that that income rather than um more traditional salaries Molly spends a lot of her life with David Willits, and one of his favourite arguments, which I think has basically got a lot of truth in it, is a version of what you're saying, which is wealth inequality hasn't got worse, but wealth inequality is a lot higher than um, income inequality. And so if incomes are flat and wealth has grown, so it's more important relative to income, then it can feel like the inequality, the inequality that's large has got worse, and that might mean you think the whole thing has got worse, even if the abstract level. Molly, what's your, having like wrestled with the report, what's your takeaway on how we should like, what's the right way to think about this, given the, the kind of tension between your first few charts? Yeah, well, I think I would agree with what George said. So, um, as we showed, inequality measured by wealth shares has fallen. But, as we've shown, the um, actual value of wealth has exploded, which means the gaps between families are much larger. And, that's, um, and we're seeing that within um, age groups and across age groups. And I think another reason why people feel it is because they compare themselves with other people in their age group. So if age, um, if wealth inequality is much larger among those, as we've shown, middle age groups, then um, people will compare their experience to others, um, their peers. So I think that's probably why yep. the wealth gaps feel much worse. So without lumping Molly in with our middle age, but dragging you two in, <laughs> So like one of the things the report's saying is the middle-aged have got less wealth than their predecessors. So maybe like people in their 20s are like, even if you believe the stuff, which isn't really true on public attitudes, but even if you believe like the young are footloose and fancy free and don't mind not having a house, which none of the data supports, but let's assume you're an idiot and you believe that, right? They're, um, uh, and they're less likely to have kids, although that's really, really true if you're talking about the middle and the upper class, but anyway. They, um, but let's focus on like the 40-year-olds, okay? What it really shows is they've got, le- they've got a smaller share of wealth uh, than their immediate predecessors, and that wealth inequality amongst that group is higher. So you've got like wealth inequality going down amongst the old, largely driven by 
very high home ownership rates amongst older generations, and you've got wealth inequality going up amongst younger generations. So maybe it's that, it's that everyone who writes newspapers or is like struggling with like, oh my God, how do I like get the kids to childcare and yes. survive life, is also like the group with higher wealth inequality. Yes, I think it's, it's home ownership shapes probably more than anything else public perceptions of wealth. And actually, there's a new wealth divide which will come into play, which is how much millennials inherit from the baby boomers. And that will, I think, that will expose that the, the, the divide is going to be perpetuated. It's not the case that sort of everyone's in the, everyone's in the same boat because then some will have a, a windfall and, and, and others unfortunately won't. So I think it's that you've seen the, wealth, the wealthy continue to um, buy assets in, um, in the way they always have done, while others have that asset ownership deferred or maybe, or maybe even, even permanently cancelled given the, uh, the economic trends at the moment. Very good. Richard, you had a really great, well, not really great, really depressing, but when you were talking us through who's coming through the door or through the phone line, basically, normally or online, the, um, so you said, so some stuff's not changed. It's usually income or cost shocks that cause people coming through the door. So that's, like, that's been generally true on debt advice yeah. for ever but you said you're getting increasingly under 40s coming through the door and the prs so what do we think is driving that shift i mean i think what we're seeing is that everyone is just incredibly precarious that actually 10 15 years ago the first time you'd have a financial shock you would have had a buffer to fall back on you would have had some sort of safety net a little bit of savings potentially a resilient family network and that is just not the case anymore so i think that the pandemic is a great example of how this is accelerated so for myself example and i'm sure lots of people in this room i worked from home i kept my job i didn't buy any coffees my holiday i had booked that summer no was posh holidays it's all about it's all holidays. about the holidays i didn't even have any avocado on toast can you believe it um, and so actually lots of people's income and and wealth increased during the pandemic yeah. whereas actually for most of our clients they're in the private rental sector so they couldn't get a mortgage payment holiday obviously they were in a gig economy job so they weren't furloughed or they lost their job straight away they probably borrowed from their parents or their family initially, but that ran out pretty quickly. And now they've turned to high cost credit. So I think the pandemic is basically a bit of a microcosm for the trends that we've seen amongst our client base uh, over the last sort of 10 or 15 years. Okay, just, just to dig in a bit. So I remember, so during the pandemic, I haven't looked at this for a few months, but during the pandemic, people coming for debt advice actually went down mm. lots. Yep. Okay, so it was actually good news, I mean, it wasn't good news, People a bit like there were challenges probably if you put in the business of it you probably had challenges with your staff and things but for the country as a whole it, we didn't see what we feared which was large spikes in um, people struggling with debt we didn't see that on housing arrears until a bit later and we didn't see it on consumer credit because people weren't taking out um, when was the tipping point when did we get back to pre-pandemic debt advice traumas? Because even mm. by Christmas, it hadn't spiked, had it? Yeah, no, and it's, it's starting to increase now, but we're still not back to pre-pandemic levels in terms of debt advice and across the sector for several reasons, which some of which I'm not sure we'll actually understand for, for several years or so. So we know amongst human behaviour uh, and, and kind of how people act, that they will not come for debt advice until something crystallizes into a real crisis. And for some people, that is a bailiff on the doorstep. That is the point that they will come and they will phone us and they'll say, God, I wish I'd made this phone call two years ago. Um, and actually during the pandemic, we saw several things in the sense that banks just gave widespread forbearance. 
uh, that collection action was paused, enforcement action was paused, the furlough scheme, the uplift in universal credit. So all of these things, save the rent arrears, yeah, rent arrears all of these things stopped a problem, which in, in my view and in our view at Step Change still exists, crystallizing into that point of crisis. I think it still will, and all of our evidence is suggesting that people have kind of accrued a huge amount of borrowing and, and additional debt and, and rent arrears and, and various other bits and pieces during the pandemic. But when that begins to crystallize again is anyone's guess. And part of that is a good news story. We've seen banks and, and creditors get better. So they are still giving forbearance. They are much more sympathetic. They are supporting people better. So part of this is a good thing. You know, the FCA means that we kind of have probably sort of cleaner credit markets than we did maybe 10 years ago. Um, and I think it'll be fascinating to see what that kind of transpires in terms of debt advice over the next few years. Why, why have loads of financial providers changed? When I do stuff with the industry nowadays, people are desperate to say, and, and it's true, they've changed their practices, and they definitely have, I compare it to the 2000s, um, the discussion about the level of forbearance you would offer. And the financial incentives to offer forbearance haven't fundamentally changed. Like in the end, you were always weighing up what can you get out of a client now versus what do you get if you play it longer. What, why have they changed? So some of it's regulation, obviously. Yep. But it doesn't appear to be just that. People do seem to have changed their view about what the optimal collection strategies. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, a lot of it is, is regulation. So hats off to the FCA who've made some really big strides forward on, on a number of bits of regulation. I think part of it is just reputational. They realise that actually uh, their reputation cannot withstand having constant uh, stories about treating clients unfairly. But I would say actually there is a kind of financial element to this. And as a charity, I always like to make the case that this isn't just about kind of fluffy niceties. There is a real economic need for debt advice and to get people back on their feet. We know if people have huge amounts of problem debt, that is a drag on the economy. You know, lower income households, when they have more money in their pocket, don't hoard it in crypto. <laughs> they go out and spend it in the economy. Uh, people who are back on their feet and uh, are more financially resilient and are able to borrow again and take out financial products again are long term worth more to a bank or a creditor than if they are struggling in financial uh, problems uh, and not able to kind of use that credit or, or take out new products. Okay. So, Very good. The most important bit there is stop buying crypto, people. <laughs> We told you it was a waste of money. Now you've all gone and lost your money. You shouldn't have done it in the first place. Dear, but don't do it anymore. Right, now, um, let's do the economics of where this all takes us, okay? So let's do, there's two big, and there's some questions coming through here. So let's do um, the underpinning of something you're raising, which is, so if you compare us to other countries, right, overall the wealth is much higher than most other countries. So although we are much lower income than France and Germany, we have higher wealth levels our households are generally richer, right? And definitely in the Netherlands because of the way in which pension systems work and things in different countries. So we have higher wealth levels, but we have lower savings levels. So basically what's going on is if you hold wealth in Britain, you hold it in either housing, this, the main gap is housing, and to some degree in private pensions, uh, whereas in some other countries you might have a bit less housing wealth, but you'll have some cash in the bank, right? And as you're saying, cash in the bank really matters for the hard end. When, when really bad stuff happens and you need liquid stuff, then have, um, uh, but it also then really matters whether or not you've got a house, basically, because you don't have other sources of. Um, so it's, why, what, what, why have we ended up as a country that has, it's all about housing and it's not about other forms of savings? That's, that's, that's a, a very good question. You're on the like, social, you're on the social like we're all like diseased, we've watched too much housing TV, or you're on the <laughs> economics, it makes complete sense because 
there was false growth in housing wealth and you wouldn't have made as much money with cash in the bank. Well, I think governments of all parties for too long have relied on stoking the, the housing market rather than um, looking to create a more uh, balanced economy. Um, you see governments always promise to uh, turn us into a nation of makers again and export more. And then in practice, um, it's, it's much easier to to rely on, on, on the housing market, which I think is another reason why there is this taboo over, over wealth taxes, because there's a sense that um, it's, it's, it's no-go territory because it's, it's so central. Um, but it, there, it is a, there is a degree of, 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 of complacency because um, I think partly because we had the, the, long, the long boom where um, before the crash where, where property values were rising and, and living standards in general were too. And it feels since then we've had a series of shocks, the financial crisis, uh, Brexit to some extent and, 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 and the spike in inflation. So then just as actually there were signs that living standards were starting, real ages were starting to rise um, in, more, in a more, in more in normal sense. And then since then you've had the, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, and now this huge inflation spike. And it feels like there hasn't been the political bandwidth uh, to take a step back at any point during all of that and to say, how can we create an economy where uh, people can afford to save more that is less reliant on, 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 on property and that um, where people can have the uh, support they need during, during tough times. So, but it feels like now that conversation is, is, is more essential than ever. Molly, why don't you give us any reflections you want on that, on savings and housing, but also take this question, which is, okay, your overall wealth disparities numbers are what they are. How about, it's hard to know exactly what the question's getting at, but if all the houses cost the same, uh, i.e. we haven't had house price growth and we um, forget, and we didn't, how would that, one way of thinking about this is basically what is the pure home ownership bit doing, change in home ownership doing, rather than change in house prices? Um, yes, so in terms of how home ownership is affecting, I guess, wealth gaps and wealth inequality and other things going on. So what we've seen is a rise in asset prices at the um, benefiting, so home ownership levels and rising housing prices, benefiting those at the top of the income distri uh, wealth distribution. But we're also seeing um, other areas of the distribution seeing increases in wealth. So particularly the bottom of the wealth distribution um, is condensing as a result of um, increases in pension wealth as a result of um, auto-enrollment. So it's not all about um, housing, uh, home ownership and rising asset prices. There are other things going on which is um, affecting the distribution of... Um, That's okay, so just, just like, tell people what we mean by condensing? Um, so what we're seeing is that um, people in the bottom 20% of the wealth uh, distribution are seeing their wealth increase, but uh, people in the, 40, um, the uh, 40th percentile are not seeing the same increases. So we're seeing increases in wealth at the bottom, but the middle of the distribution not having the same, um, the same increases. So the bottom so is catching up a bit yeah. towards the middle, even as the, okay, that makes a total, um, uh, that makes total sense. Right, let's do, so on this savings question, okay, so every government in history has said it'd be really good if we save more, 
we have much lower savings rate outside of a pandemic where we have very high savings rates. We have low savings rates traditionally as a country. Uh, we have low investment rates as well. So these two things may not be related. Um, no policy has been successful except for having a pandemic to stop you going on your holiday at encouraging really uh, British households to save with one exception, which is basically forcing, semi-forcing people to do pension savings is the only thing. If you were like big picture, there's like micro policies which have done better or worse than each other, but they're all tiny. Right. The big thing is just semi-forcing people to save into pensions has had a big effect. Maybe not big enough, but it's had a big effect. Everything else broadly hasn't worked. The, um, and John's, well, I should say, it hasn't worked in aggregate in getting our overall savings levels up. One thing that any of you spend time um, like wandering around Surrey golf clubs will find out. Um, I'm not saying you should do that. That's not a lifestyle advice, but some of you may accidentally do that at some point in your lives. If you do do that, what you will discover is that there are loads of people, mainly older people, well-off people, who basically have huge amounts of savings in tax-free products, okay? And that's because they have been doing it year in, year out since the 90s when we started having mass retail products that allowed you to save money in tax-free environments. And John Bryant has got a question which is getting into this, which is, okay, we have, we, our policy is not doing a good job of encouraging society as a whole to save, but is giving quite a lot of tax relief to people who have very large amounts of savings. So... Um, would it, one possible measure to wealth would be to place an upper limit on the amount that an individual can get tax-free in ISAs. Um, let's not get into SIPs, but there's like predecessors to ISAs, uh, PEP and other stuff they, um, that allow people... Now, I, there, are, there, there won't be loads, right? But there will be some people that could have theoretically... I think you've met how much you could have got. You would definitely be able to have into the hundreds of thousands by now if you've been saving. You're maxing out your allowances every year, okay? But obviously, I mean, I was involved in government decisions in the 2000s which involved very large increases in the ISA allowance. It was a really stupid idea. The, um, but we did it. So basically John's saying, why are we providing tax relief on savings of £100,000? Like you say, we need people to have £1,000. There's a big societal objective in people having some savings. It's less clear there's a massive societal objective in tax relieving people with 150k in, what do you reckon? I agree, yes. <laughs> What's the downsides? Let's make this harder. <laughs> That, well, it's, it would be seen as, you can imagine the, the spin the press would put on that. Why, 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 is, why should people be punished for saving? Um, George, why do you want to punish people for saving? Yeah. No, I'm saying you. <laughs> What's the answer? <laughs> why are you such a sicko? Well, that, that there's a limited amount of um, tax relief the government can provide, and we need to concentrate it on those strands of the uh, the population who are... That's, who are the excellent, that's excellent script writing. Right, there you go. That's the politician's answer when they announce the policy. What do you reckon? I mean, I spend an alarming little amount of my time talking about people with that level of assets uh, in my, my day job, as I'm sure you can imagine. I mean, I'd say a few things. From our client base, there are people who wouldn't be able to save a pound a month. That's where this yep. needs to go. Yep. And I mean, there are two things. One is the Help to Save scheme is actually a fantastic scheme. Yep. And when we tell people about Remind it... Remind everyone what Help Save is. So Help Save is generally uh, targeted to a lower-income households, people on benefits, where if you save a certain amount over, I think it's one, maybe two years, uh, the government will give you 50% extra on top of that, up to a certain amount, a few hundred pounds. But will basically, within two years, allow you to get to about 500 or so pound saving, which is going to be fantastic. People don't believe it because no one's ever heard of it. So if we could take a fraction of what is given in tax free allowance to people at the upper end and actually just put a marketing budget behind this so people know about this scheme, I would be delighted. Uh, and also you talked about um, pensions and, and auto enrolment. 
Actually, there are some fantastically innovative schemes around uh, sidecar savings uh, at point of payroll, um, where people can put in um, before they take their paycheck home to build up a bit of a nest egg, which is we are fundamentally evangelical about, which can have a real impact. Actually, there are some nudge behaviour things that we could be really pushing, which would encourage people to save, which we're just not doing. Very good. Right. Let's, that's the economy sorted. Now we're going to do a bit of society. The, um, so... There's a number of elements to this. So there's the, Molly showed us a kind of slightly traumatic chart on the like generational shift that's going along. Now we, ex we expect people to hold more wealth when they're older, but we're getting a steeper, a steeper spread of the wealth shares across the age um, distribution. What we didn't, well, none of you really touched on is how does this change society in terms of, I mean, you briefly mentioned it, George, in terms of um, uh, inheritances, but, mm. but medium term, um, where does this take us in terms of what decides who does well in society? It's one level people think it doesn't matter. Okay, look, all houses cost a bit more, right? But everyone, but, but it's not real wealth because you can't, you need to live in the house, right? So you can't sell it unless you want to live nowhere. So, uh, so you can't consume it. So maybe we just shouldn't care too much. It's just like, a, it's, a, it's true in the statistics, but it's not a big societal shift. Well, I think it, it will have an impact in terms of life quality. Um, I think like anyone who who lives in London, you notice the the massive difference um, in experience uh, between those who are renting and those who are owning. If you look at the um, the number of times someone moves if they're renting, I mean, uh, it was a, a piece in the New Statesman, uh, most recent issue by one of my colleagues, who's uh, uh, mentioned she's moved ten times in her in her adult life. Uh, was someone who. Uh, how, how old is she, roughly? Not 31. 31, okay. Um, and it's definitely not her. She's not like really messy no. or really loud. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I can, no she's, she's very nice, very okay. friendly. Um, but it's, so I think it's, if you, unless you have uh, a more German-style system with uh, limits on rent increases, long-term tenancy agreements, you know, that to me is the most obvious way in which it affects life quality because your life is so much more less predictable if you're if you're renting rather than rather than owning. Molly, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think um, it's important in terms go in terms of young people's financial resilience. Um, previous research um, done at the foundation has shown that home ownership is the most efficient form of um, tenure, meaning that uh, people who own, own homes can save more and therefore, I think um, people in the private rented sector, so young people, um, will struggle more in terms of building up their savings than those who, uh, those who already own wealth. Yeah, I mean, I said earlier that the only way we've managed to get people to save is auto-enrolment into pensions, actually. It's actually that plus so much. It's basically enforced saving works in Britain. And we do enforce saving either via pension or we do it via uh, paying down the capital on your mortgage. That's basically the only thing that we've managed to do. Or give you money because asset prices went up, but that's not saving, that's just called being lucky, which we should all aim to be um, in life. I mean, one way to think about it, because you raised the social mobility aspect of this, so partly that manifests itself as um, it really matters who your parents are, being lucky to inherit, okay? And you're seeing that in the bank of mum and dad story, but then also in inheritances eventually. So it's just like the drip, drip, drip of assets mm. or the big part of assets you get given when you're unlucky enough for your parents to pass away, the, um, it probably also leads to wider effects. So I'll give you an example, which is 
it affects who lives where. Right. So Molly showed us a chart of the wealth shares in the north of England versus the population size, okay? Now, at one level, you're like, well, if you actually do focus groups in some areas with lower house prices, people will say this is quite a good thing. Uh, it means I can live here, have an okay standard of living, and um, not be crippled with low, a really high mortgage. Um, the flip side of that is they can't move to a higher housing cost area to take any opportunities up. Whereas you can move from a high housing cost area to a, you're not like we we did this in a before. You're off to Leeds later to, for your head office in Leeds. You're not you're much less likely to move from Scarborough to Leeds these days because of the differential in house prices. But you could move from Leeds to Scarborough. So like it does matter where you get established, where your parents are, to determine what your wider life opportunities are. So it, it could contribute to basically people's life choices being much more restricted if they haven't got the wealth. Mm. Yeah, okay, well, I'm glad everyone's agreeing um, uh, with that. As I always say to everybody, it also means it's really important who you marry if you haven't got a uh, really rich parents. If you've got parents, you're fine, marry who you like. If you haven't got really rich parents, this is your one-shot game. Well, it's not one-shot anymore because <laughs> there's an average of like one or two divorces each. But, uh, but assuming you're kind of vaguely in love with someone, it's a one-shot game, this whole marriage thing. You need to find someone with high wealth if you are low wealth because you ain't going to get it from anywhere else. And that's why this wealth gap thing, and we didn't really spell this out, but the reason this wealth gaps way of looking at it rather than the tra traditional Gini coefficient matters is because you are not in a world with like eight times uh, national income in household wealth, you are not going to earn your way to being wealthy. It's going to come from somewhere, which is either nowadays someone giving it to you uh, or you're marrying it or um, uh, asset price growth giving it to you at some point. But you're not, it's not going to come from you saving. It's not possible, basically, except for really extreme cases. And, and you'll notice that the two people that Molly showed us at the beginning, um, uh, yes, they're both white men, but they're also in America. And the really large wealth rises that we're seeing are very US dominated. Uh, just like, like you were saying earlier, why do we all think it's really bad? Because some really big global wealth increases are visible, which is basically, but we haven't got many. I mean, we've got some really rich Russians. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I think we it's also London as as uh, as the, you know the Wimbledon economy idea, the idea that this is where the what world. Is, what is the Wimbledon economy? So the Wimbledon economy is the idea that rather than having um, lots of sort of homegrown talent, instead we provide the platform for players from around the world to come and. So you just you you you're the host rather than. A star, if you like, so and this you, idea. What do you want? Do you want a Wombles economy instead, <laughs> where they're like definitely yes. homegrown in Wimbledon? <laughs> but I think, and, and and it will be interesting um, whether the uh, chilling effect, the cooling of the 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 oligarch loving changes perceptions. But this, I think, it is some of that is 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 the the oligarchs, the the the, the plutocrats, and how conspicuous they've been in in London. Okay, very good. Right now, politics. So you've touched a bit on wealth taxes, so let's not go all over that again, because I want to move us on to the cost of living crisis, which is how this affects that and makes <coughs> it feel real rather than kind of academic or longer term effects on people. But on the politics, how does it affect our politics? There's, uh, here's a n number of things to like think about. So we've got, uh, the eight, we've got an age issue, which you touched on in your remarks, um, where we've got a much darker age divide in how people vote these days, which is unlikely to be unrelated to the issues about home ownership and where wealth sits in society. Um, everyone should read some of the work that Jane Green uh, Oxford has published recently on the nature of insecurity uh, and how that feeds through into people's voting um, uh, habits. There's also, I mean, if we were doing this event in the US to a lesser degree in France, 
people will be talking about whether or not having really high levels of wealth is a problem in terms of democratic, i.e. Can, can people buy electoral results, right? People, why, why, we don't talk about that much. I mean, every now and again you get the Labour Party saying the Tories are, are kind of being owned by rich person X from the city, and then the Tories say the Labour Party is owned by some union barons, mm. don't we? Is that as bad as it gets? Yes, well, I think the, the, I think the funny thing is, and again, this is where the US comparison is interesting, is that you look at the, the amounts that, of money that are swelling around, uh, the, around the UK, and the people who have experienced the US politics sort of laugh at, at the controversy around... Um, when it, when the, because ours are small. Yes, because uh, you know, we do have what, spending, spending limits. What's about 20 million in a, an election or something? I mean, the, it's tiny. The, we're, we're talking about the equivalent amount that a US donor might give in, what, in one lump sum. So, but it is, it's, I think the, there are issues around democracy. I mean, we've seen, don't, don't want to stray too much into political territory, you know, but it was very striking you know, that Boris Johnson uh, has uh, awarded peerages to, to Prominent conservative donors, sometimes even in defiance of the, the, the Lord's Appointment Commission. So wealth does uh, distort British politics and, and a lot of the controversies that politicians have been caught up in have been donor-related. So um, we, we, we should have a conversation at some point about that in terms of do we want, I think, again, it's proposals that, that Labour's come forward with at various points about having a cap on, a cap on donations. Um, well, as in that, per, the, yes, the most yeah. an individual can give. Yeah. Yeah, definitely worth it. You do see versions of it. It's not. I mean, the reason we everyone focuses on the US is because all UK politicians are basically obsessed with American politics, for, mainly for ill. But yeah. they're basically obsessed with it. They all wish they were appearing on like a kind of a democratic a democratic conference rather than a yeah. party or a Tory conference with like <laughs> squillions being spent, much better makeup than they can afford. Uh, but you know, basically more beautiful people around in general, and they've had loads of work. So they um. And they are basically, but it's basically a good idea that our politics looks a bit drab. I'm basically, I'm massively in favour of low production values in British politics. It's very healthy for keeping, uh, and you don't even want, like, even in France, you've definitely seen, I mean, you've basically seen corruption, basically, yeah. and we don't want that. And that does also come with once you get into high spending yeah. um, elections. So let's keep politics rubbish in Britain and keep it, uh, and keep it cheap. Right. Cost of living. Okay, so that's obviously what we're all going to be talking about all the way through the next, um, well, I fear, 18 months, rather than, it's not a short and sharp shock, unfortunately. Molly showed us a chart at the end on the energy price cap and what's now expected to happen. And we've had the um, inflation data out this morning with a faster increase than expected to 9.4% um, uh, CPI inflation, the recent increase driven by fuel and driven by food. And obviously food is, the only, food is bottom heavy, as in a bigger percentage of the basket of poorer households than the rest of the population is the more than energy is the, uh, housing and food are the only ones that are more bottom heavy than energy i'm looking at someone in the audience who's like semi nodding at me depending how you measure energy jack we're not doing a depending on how we measure it answer okay all right okay fine so petrol we, well, the, the audience is for those of you at home is telling us the answer is petrol prices which you'll notice anyone that's driven past a petrol station recently are really high uh, that is more top heavy Rich households do a lot more driving, not least because poor households are often concentrated in cities. There, and then um, for poor households, it's uh, food, energy, and housing that make up. Now, one thing that I think we haven't quite, and this fits in with what you were saying earlier about <coughs> the concentration of like, people's, people's like, coping mechanisms, okay? So over, we obviously spent our whole life talking about the squeeze on incomes that's been going on for the last 15 years in the country. Um, 
because that is coming on top of the UK having a high level of income inequality, it means that poorer households in Britain are much poorer than households in other developed countries, right? Now, one effect of that that I don't think we've clocked but is now about to become really important is that over time, the percentage of poorer households' budgets that go on essentials has been growing, okay? So normally you think countries get richer, we spend less on essentials and more on fun stuff, right? And that's obviously true in aggregate. But in Britain, poorer households used to spend around half their income in the 2000s, early 2000s on essentials. And, and that's, that grew to about 60% before, the, just below 60%, just before the pandemic. So their margins to adjust to a shock of an essential price going up, energy, food, fuel, because fuel is essential, despite everyone you know, it being fashionable to say nobody should drive anywhere. In the real world, in lots of people have to drive to get to their workplace. Those things go up. There's, there isn't that much budget flexibility to cope with it in a way that there might be either we have more savings, because in other countries, it's not just people have more savings. They, um, uh, for the bottom, they have, they're spending, they have some spending they can cut, basically. So what do you think, Richard? Is that, is that what's driving the patterns you're giving us, or is it something else? Yeah, so I mean, cost of living last month became the number one reason that people said they're phoning us. So we asked, what's the reason for your problem debt? And last month, cost of living uh, took over uh, kind of life shock in terms of the, the number one reason. And actually, if you look at sort of particularly food prices, some of the increases on very basic staples, pasta, milk, are absolutely alarming. And that's pushing people into kind of further difficulty. I mean, I, I suppose for us, there is kind of the, the specific issue that an individual is going to face. But then there is a broader issue. So if people's costs are going up, their ability to repay goes down. So as a sector, we put lots of people on repayment plans, for example, but people's surpluses are going down. So far fewer yep. people are going to be able to repay their debts. Uh, actually, we're going to be seeing a greater increase in people who have to go into things like debt relief orders, which is a type of insolvency for lower income households. But people are borrowing to pay for essentials, one of the first signs of financial problems. So if you're borrowing to pay for food, we can't put you on an insolvency solution because you can't take out credit for six years and you're using your credit card to eat. Um, we're seeing an increase in negative what, what budgets. Do, what do you do? So that's a really serious circumstance when that yeah, happens. Yeah, hugely. What do, you, what, do, what do you do when someone's in that situation? Um, so we would give them advice to write to their creditors and offer them for, say, 12 months a token payment of maybe a pound per debt in the hope that their situation would improve. We would signpost them to housing support, food banks, whatever it might be. But there is no structural solution for their debt at that point. You're basically playing for time. Yeah. And does that work? For some people it will work, for some people it won't. And that's where the kind of the limitations of debt advice, and we, we did a bit of an article recently, so we're running out of kind of tools in our toolbox to help people at this point. Yeah. And I think that is only going to get considerably worse. Okay. Let, let's take a poll on Slido. Again, if you haven't already, it's um, uh, hashtag wealth gaps on Slido, which is basically, and you guys can give your answers to this model, you can go first. But what is the thing that we should be most worried about in terms of how obviously lot, we're worried about lots of things like the actual cost of living crisis but specifically how it feeds across into um uh, the family balance sheet is it debt levels overall go up is it rising debt costs which could happen for two reasons one interest rates are going up in response to the high inflation or it could happen because the uh, lenders decide people are riskier basically you gave us an example of that earlier is it that the type of debt people hold changes? So, for example, I mean, we'll come back to this, but uh, Molly rightly raised with us this issue of rent arrears, of, of um, bill arrears, okay, as a type of debt. So, if you like, if you went back ten years, everyone spent all their time worrying about credit cards. Bill arrears, broadly defined, is kind of more where the action is these days. 
Uh, is it that people don't get access to credit when they need it? You've just given us another really awful example of that. Or is it, well, look, everyone's just going to run down their savings. That's bad because we need to have savings, but that's how we're going to get through this. So what do people think? What are you most worried about? Um, Obviously, all of these are going to happen to yeah. a degree, right? So, so I think in the short term, uh, the type of, as we've shown, the type of debt that people hold is particularly worrying um, with, as we've shown, low-income families more likely to hold... Um, debt which is worse for their well-being um, but I think in the long run the falling savings as a result of the cost of living crisis um, will affect will be a long-term impact in terms of families financial resilience and how they'll be able to respond to shocks in the future so okay I've taken two there you, you, sure cheated. That's you cheated but it's roughly allowed and one thing that's worth flagging is you know, we were talking earlier about people not people saving over the last two years. And you've, any of you coming to regularly to Resolution Foundation events will know we've touched on very large increases in savings in aggregate, uh, over £100 million over the last um, couple of years. But it's not poor households doing that extra savings. So it's not the people worst affected by what's happening now. They haven't got loads of savings to draw down on because of the pandemic, because they weren't spending on really expensive holidays in the first place if they were the kind of people that are going to be coming through your uh, door. George, what are you going for? I'd go for the top one, actually, um, because of what we know about how bad um, excessive debt is for people's uh, mental health, how bad it is for relationships, the strain it puts on, on families. And then I'd also mention in this context that the, we often hear about uh, how the young are burdened by student debt, which I think is sometimes used erroneously because, of course, it's not debt in the, in the sense that we normally understand it as consumer debt that has to be paid back often at, at a very strict timetable and uh, potentially uh, penal interest rates. It's a graduate tax, but we should actually talk about the, the graduate tax. And this is something I, I bang on about a lot because you've got people who are on incomes which are below the UK median wage, which is about uh, 31,000. Who are paying a marginal tax rate uh, after the uh, NI rise, I think it will be 42.25%. That's a very high marginal tax rate for someone on a modest income to be paying. And it, and it contributes to, I think, the reason it's so hard for uh, younger people to save, to buy property and to build up savings in general. What do you think having 10% of your income going in tax might be a bigger deal than the avocados? That's a ridiculous suggestion. George. It's all about the avocados. And it's people like you with your numbers that are getting in there. Uh, Molly, do you want to ask you, we didn't touch on this, but on we should touch on uh, student loans because they're doing a lot of the work in the aggregate debt figures. Yeah. We well, do cover it later in the report. Yeah, so we have got a chart in the report. So that, again, that's another um, plug to go and read it. But uh, what we've seen is that earlier... Um, in around 2006 to 8, student loan debt accounted for around 7% of the aggregate uh, debt levels, um, excluding mortgages. Um, but this has risen to around a quarter um, uh, in the latest data uh, pre-pandemic. And, and it's worth noting it's obviously quite concentrated amongst some cohorts. Yeah. It's not like we gave everybody in society <laughs> student debt. We gave like a quite narrow group of age people are a lot of debt and that's basically dominating the figures what was your answer they've now disappeared um so i would agree with the level of debt but i would also say 
not all debt is created equally. So if I was kind of uh, defaulting on my debt, I would have greater confidence that I would be treated fairly by a mainstream credit card provider, Barclay card, whoever. Yep. Actually, the point that I'm behind on my council tax, I'd be very worried about how my local authority is going to treat me. By the time I'm behind on potentially high cost credit or payday loan, I'd be far more worried that that is going to be passed incredibly quickly to a collection agency or a bailiff. Uh, so actually, the type of debt people are going to have is going to be more harmful. Okay, that's great. Well, let's bring up the results and then let's come back to that question because I think that is a really, let's see what you all voted for. Okay, see, this is why I don't believe in first past the post, you see. <laughs> I'm, I, well, you're, you're kind of have your cake and eat it and going for one and three, basically. I'm basically in three. I think we're, by the time we get to Christmas, all the energy companies are going to be screaming because they're going to be realising, like, red, bill arrears are going to be going absolutely through the roof. And maybe not, it doesn't need to be an organised... It doesn't need to be a poll tax style, we're not paying campaign. People are not going to be able to pay these bills. And it may not be, it won't be that they've actually formally got to arrears in lots of cases. It will just be people not paying their direct debits the, um, and feeding through it in a way we haven't seen. Now, um, anyway, look, that's not what the, everyone else cares about. Everyone's more about rising debt levels overall, but, and that's what you know, democracy is about. But on, going back to your point, so if we look at the last 15 years, so around the financial crisis immediately after it, people were very focused on credit card debt. I'm, I'm simplifying here, but broadly, we were very worried about credit card debt. The, um, what we're seeing over the last 10 years, both in the debt advice sector, but also in wider data on household debt, and also in what people are raising as issues affecting them, is the debt amongst lower income households, the issues that come up are bill arrears before this energy price rise, right? Bill arrears and council tax. Yeah. Those, and are those two... Are those two the biggest problems in terms of people coming from Outside the door? of credit cards, yeah, those would be the absolute Credit card is still bigger. So than credit cards would still be the biggest one, but that would be basically people using their credit cards to potentially pay for some of those essentials in and of itself. So it moves the problem around in terms of how it appears as debt. And why do we, so what, what has driven this shift over the last 15 years, do you think? I think it was the point you were talking about that actually a higher proportion of people's earnings are going to absolute fundamental essentials. This isn't about frivolous spending. This is about people not being able to afford their council tax. And, and as we kind of mentioned, if you look at sort of some of the legislation and some of the practices, that is where you will be treated the least fairly. Uh, you know, you only have to kind of miss one council tax payment and I would be incredibly worried for you in terms of your local authority, how they're going to treat you. That needs urgent reform. That is definitely true. The, um, uh, George, what do you think about the point Molly raised earlier, which is, so coping mechanisms, right, is what we're going to be in the business mm. of, okay? Like some people maybe are going to get big enough pay rises that this doesn't feel really bad, but actually for most people, mm. the year's going to feel pretty bad, okay? The, um, and then the question is, how do you cope? And your coping mechanisms are spend less on non-essentials, uh, draw down on your savings, both easily. Both those two things are what higher income households are going to do. Okay, that is what's going to happen. That it's going to have a slightly lower standard of living. Uh, they'd be made poorer, but they can cope. Um, if you haven't got either of those two options, family and friends is the one that Molly showed us is the main thing. But when all your family and friends are being hit by the same shock, so it's not like normally we think about debt advice as a, your, your boiler broke or you lost your job, right? But now everybody's getting hit with the broken boiler at the same time, and we're talking about. Uh, you know, bills up by fifteen hundred pounds, maybe more for some larger households. How? Are, what is going to happen? In a way, it, I mean, is it? I think M Martin Lewis said. I mean, he's edged into saying social unrest is what happens. Yes. So let's hope that isn't what happens. But what is going to happen? The, the government will have to provide more support, and I actually think the that is even more likely. Now we'll have a new prime minister on September the fifth, um, and whether that's in the form of 
tax cuts, which I think uh, would be a very expensive way and a very uh, unwise and unconcentrated form of support, even if uh, there are some tax cuts that might be, be sensible, um, the next Prime Minister will have to come up with, with a response, particularly um, given the state of the opinion polls and uh, the interventions by people such as uh, uh, Martin Lewis, who, who, who is uh, often a very moderate, uh, mild-mannered man, that he's sending out warnings like this, I think, is changing the, the terms of debate. I also think you will see more radical thinking. I think it was very striking at the start of the Ukraine crisis, it's become clear that we were going to head for an energy price spike that Rory Stewart, former Conservative leadership candidate, called for free public transport, saying that this would be a good thing for the environment and it would be a good way of supporting people who um, rely, uh, have relied a lot on, on, on cars. And I mentioned universal basic income. I think you're going to start hearing a lot more around the idea of universal basic services where day-to-day -day essentials such as food, transport, are provided at uh, a cheaper cost or even free um, because, as we've, as you've documented, uh, as Richard spoke about, the the share of income that people are now spending on essentials is rising. That's going to lead to increasing debate about okay, so how do we make sure that people can afford these these essentials and that they're not being forced to devote ever a greater share of their income to them? Okay, let's let's dig into that a bit. So there's a question here, bring up on the screen, you guys can see, um, which is basically okay. So there's two different things running in. Let's come back to the specifics on the savings support packages. But there's two different things running in tension here. You've got a new prime minister turning up in early September. They may or not, may or may not look that different to people that were the chancellor or the foreign secretary beforehand. But like you've got newish people around, right? Uh, newish people, on average, newish people announce stuff. Okay, so that points in the in the, in the direction of doing more this autumn. Uh, bills are higher than we thought they were going to be. Okay, so the energy price cap in October and probably the January after are going to be higher than we thought they were going to be in May when the government announced its last support package. Also pushes in the direction of do more on the support side of things. Then pushing the other way is if you're sitting in the Treasury, you're sitting there, your head's in your hands because people are promising massive tax cuts, like tens of billions of pounds of tax cuts. So Liz Truss, currently the leader uh, in the uh, betting markets, the um, Revolution Foundation has no view on who or most chances of them winning, but um, is saying no to the CT rise and no to the national insurance rise has already happened, right? So we're talking very large tax cuts being committed to. The, um, so the Treasury is looking at that and they're looking at the fact that people are going to want to spend more money on helping people through this winter. And, and national insurance, getting rid of the national insurance rise and getting rid of the corporation tax rise does basically nothing for the bottom half of the population, right? So it doesn't, the people that are coming to, to step change are not, in the are not in the same group who would benefit from those tax cuts generally. They, um, there's longer term questions about corporation tax, but national insurance basically goes to the, disproportionately to the top half of the income distribution. So, and the, so the Treasury will be like, right, well, if you want to do that, don't do loads on the cost of living. Okay, I mean, uh, tax cuts will be announced as being about the cost of living, but they're not. Okay, they're about other things. So, uh, Molly, why don't you go first? Are we are we going to get another? You know, we have a go at this, but are we going to get another big package in the autumn, or are we going to get some tax cuts instead? Um, well, I would hope that we'd get another package in the autumn because um, the current package announced in May earlier this year was, I think, largely based on earlier estimates of the energy price cap. And we've seen that actually it's going to go um, above that, meaning that many uh, low-income families will 
fall short. So I hope that we'll have another package of energy support, but okay. I'm not sure. Life's not about hope, Molly. <laughs> right. Well, life is about hope. Hope's nice. Right, George, we're going to get one or not? Yes, I think we will. Um, but it probably will be another stopgap solution. And eventually we're going to have to stop um, tackling the, the symptoms of getting some, some of the causes. So what I think the, the heat wave of the last few days, plus um, the big spike in, in energy costs should do is focus attention also on, on decarbonizing the energy supply. Um, it's notable that the other tax that I think Penny Morden and Liz Truss have suggested uh, cutting is suspending the green levy on energy bills, which I think is a complete red herring in the sense that it now um, accounts for a smaller rather than a larger proportion of energy bills. And if you actually look at some of the so-called green crap that the David uh, Cameron government scrapped... Um, it's quarter to 11 in the morning. <laughs> hey, we're going to get complaints now. <laughs> oh, Research shows that energy bills would now be lower rather than 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 higher if, if those measures stay That's, in place. That is true. On the on, on the um, uh, the green levies, I mean, there's obviously a distinction between whether you're pretending you can scrap them totally, or you're taking them into general taxation. And I think Liz Trust just wants to borrow, yeah. to pay for them. So it's not like she's not trying to like. I don't think maybe I'm wrong. I'm looking around the room. If anyone's paid more attention than me, I think the proposal is just we're going to borrow loads of money to pay for it. The, um, uh, and obviously the decision really comes down to the big, if you look across Europe, right, the US has got smaller energy price rises than us. In Europe, the basic choice comes down to, do you give people money, our approach, and we're saying maybe more money, do you cap retail prices? We've like, we haven't capped them, we've like temporarily slowed the rise, but some countries have actually capped them and then paid for that. So France, or do you cap wholesale prices? You basically, and you can just choose where you subsidise. And those are your, yeah. those basically are your choices. The, and the question is, do we move from the giving people cash to something else broadly? What do you reckon? You're going to get a package in the autumn? I think we're going to have to. The politics um, just means that people are going to be absolutely, you know, literally starving. And you know, it's not a political choice of do we spend 10 billion or save 10 billion. If we don't, that 10 billion will just show up elsewhere in terms of housing costs, mental health services. You know, there is a huge societal cost of poverty and problem debt that it's better to spend on now. Right, very good. Um, uh, I basically agree with the panel. There's like 0% chance we're not going to be announcing a new package in the autumn. And if you're sitting in the Treasury now and you're thinking, well, that's going to be expensive, I'm totally with you, it's going to be expensive, but bad things happen. And that is what we are going to be doing in the autumn. So you may as well get planned on it now rather than waiting for the 5th of September, uh, because then we will all be too late because we're getting the energy price cap rise in October. Right, okay, look, can we all uh, thank our panel for all their thoughts today? If you, um, I hope what you've taken away from this, and you should read the report because you definitely will take it away then, it's that, uh, yes, wealth inequality hasn't gone up. In fact, it's fallen over the long view or been broadly flat more recently. But household wealth and understanding it is really important. One, for longer term trends about how it shapes society, social mobility, who's able to live where and all the rest. And it's really important for the short term about what's going to happen over the course of the next year when I, I do think we need to start waking up to like how bad what's going to happen this winter is going to be and the amount of resilience people have in the face of that is going to be very important and that basically will come down to their household wealth or the lack of it. So let's all be paying attention to that. And I lastly want to say thank you to our partners on this, the Financial Fairness Trust, who are doing lots of great work more broadly but have been brilliant supporters of this project. So thank you to them. Have a good day, everyone. Enjoy it not being quite so hot and, you know, if you find some household wealth sitting on the street, snaffle it. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research 
on the Resolution Foundation website.